0: Welcome to List of These, where I cover the cases that need it most because every life matters and everyone deserves justice. I'm your host, Leah D. Today, I'll be covering the case of Sarah DeLeon in Kansas City, Kansas. Let's get right to it. On December 29, 1989, just before 10 a.m., a train conductor in Kansas City made a horrifying discovery along an isolated area of tracks near Interstate 435. Just feet away from the tracks behind a pillar seemingly hidden from the roadway, he discovered the body of a young female. It was obvious that she had been attacked and violently murdered. Authorities were alerted and the Kansas City, Kansas Police Department responded to the scene. Officers were able to make an identification pretty quickly. The young woman was 18-year-old Sarah DeLeon. According to an episode of the DNA of Murder, one of the responding officers was 19-year-old police cadet in training Jeff Cheek. Jeff was almost the same age and had gone to the same high school, and while he didn't know her, he remembered passing her in the halls and recognized her immediately. And from the very moment he responded to that scene, Sarah's case deeply affected him. He had the same questions everyone had. Who would want to hurt this beautiful young woman so full of life, and why? The scene was processed for clues, and there really wasn't much. It was obvious that someone had dragged her body from the side of the roadway around the piling in an effort to conceal her. But aside from several pools of blood and drag marks, there were no clues left behind. It didn't appear that Sarah had been attacked at this location, but it didn't appear she had been attacked at the scene where her car had been found either. You see, just hours before Sarah's body had been found, Kansas City police had found Sarah DeLeon's black Ford Mustang abandoned near the I-70 overpass at 1.50 a.m. after being spotted by a passerby. And while it was suspicious to find a perfectly good car completely abandoned, there were no signs of a struggle. There was no blood and the car hadn't been ransacked. It was almost as if someone had just parked the car and walked away. Almost. There were two things noted about the Mustang. One, there was about a softball-sized rock found in the car on the driver's side just inside the door, a few inches in front of the driver's seat, which is an odd place for a rock. But there was no blood found on the rock, nothing that screamed foul play. The second thing noted by investigators was that the rear bumper had visible damage. It appeared as if Sarah had been rear-ended. Investigators referred to the impact as a bumper rub, according to that episode of The DNA of Murder. The damage wasn't major. Certainly not enough of an impact to alter the car's ability to function. It was more like a fender bender, with a small dent and scratch marks. The car was completely drivable. But this must have set off alarm bells for investigators, because, according to the Daily Beast, there had been a rash of bump and rubs in the local area around the same time Sarah had been murdered. And what exactly is a bump and rob? Pretty much exactly what it sounds like. Someone bumps into your car with their car from behind and when you get out, they drive off in your car. Only Sarah's black Mustang had been left behind. If the objective was to steal Sarah's car, why was the car still sitting there under the overpass? And why would someone whose motive was to steal a car go through the trouble of abducting Sarah, murdering her, and then driving her to a secondary location in an attempt to hide her body. That seems like a whole lot of trouble to not even take the car. But who am I and what do I know? And beyond the fact that Sarah's car hadn't been taken, when the medical examiner performed the autopsy, it appeared that there was a level of passion in the attack. According to the DNA of murder, Sarah had been stabbed over 26 times in the neck, back, and chest, with a cluster of stab wounds to the left side of her neck. The autopsy report, which was obtained by the Daily Beast, stated in part, The neck presents evidence of multiple stab and laceration wounds. Toward the front, they are more deeply penetrating until a large, irregular, gaping wounded area is noted some 2 to 3 inches in greatest dimensions. Characterized by ragged cut edges widely opened with exposure to the skeletal muscles of the neck, the left carotid artery has also been widely opened. Another wound to her chest was so deep it nicked her heart. And the stab wounds on her back were post-mortem. According to CBS News, Sarah had also suffered a significant head injury during the attack. It appeared Sarah had been surprised by her attacker, since there were no defensive wounds noted in the autopsy report to her hands or arms. Had it been a blitz-style assault, giving her no time to react? Had she been struck in the head first, rendering her unable to fight back? There were so many unanswered questions. But one thing was certain, Sarah's attack was up close and personal, and it was brutal. It just didn't make sense for a simple bump and rob. Besides, no other bump and rubs in the area had ended in murder. Was it possible whoever had killed Sarah had tried to mislead investigators by making it appear to have been a bump and rob gone wrong? I mean, hell. The whole town knew about the recent carjackings. Did the perpetrator think police would write it off as another bump and rob and that would deflect attention from them? Investigators spoke with Sarah's family and friends to learn who Sarah was and piece together the hours leading up to her murder. According to an episode of Dateline that aired in February of 2017, titled Fury, Sarah De Leon had finished her first semester of community college just before she was murdered. Her mom, Gail, described her as a good girl who was very health-conscious and didn't even drink caffeinated beverages because they were unhealthy. A young woman with dreams of working in the travel industry and learning about other cultures. She was a leader and a trendsetter who marched to the beat of her own drum and didn't give a wrinkled rat's ass about what other people thought. Sarah was incredibly close with her baby brother Matt, the two were only 14 months apart, and she was the sister that Matt looked up to and respected. Her mother stated that everything in Sarah's life was coming together, college, friends, and a serious boyfriend she had recently introduced to her family. In fact, Sarah had been dating the man for about six months, and roughly 48 hours prior to her body being discovered, he had gone with Sarah to her mom's apartment for a Christmas party. Her family thought he was nice and that he and Sarah seemed to get along, and she seemed happy. Her mother had no idea that when Sarah left that Christmas party, it would be the last time she would see her daughter. She had no clue that the huge hug Sarah had given her before she left would be her last hug. Or as Sarah said, I love you, mom. It would be the last time she heard those words from her daughter. And while Sarah had just been at that Christmas party with her family, they weren't the last people to see her alive. As investigators continued to arrange the puzzle pieces of Sarah's last hours, they learned the last known person to see her was that boyfriend, Matt Euland. Sarah's best friend Alice would later sit down with Paul Holes on the DNA of murder, as she had with the Kansas City, Kansas police, and recount what she knew about Sarah's relationship with Matt Euland and the events just prior to Sarah's death. She recalled that Sarah loved Matt, and that the pair were happy. Alice had been with Sarah the day before she died, and Sarah was her normal self. Nothing seemed off. She had driven her to the airport to pick up a boy Alice was seeing, and after, they had all went back to Alice's mom's house and had lunch. Alice also recalled that Sarah's black Mustang had no damage to the rear bumper that day, and she was sure of it. How was she so sure? Because Sarah had a habit of locking her purse in the trunk of her car. You see, Sarah carried a huge purse, and the inside of her sports car wasn't exactly roomy, especially when you added passengers to the mix. So Sarah would always place her purse in the trunk and lock it up. And Alice distinctly remembered standing next to Sarah as she locked up her purse that day. She had stood inches away from that rear bumper and there wasn't a scratch on it. Besides, Alice and others would report that Sarah was extremely protective of her car. She took excellent care of it. If there had been damage, it's likely that Sarah would have already been making plans to get it fixed. She was an 18-year-old girl with a beautiful black Mustang it just makes sense. After the ride to the airport and lunch, as Sarah was getting ready to leave Alice's mother's house, Alice's mom had warned both of the girls about the bump and robs happening in the area, telling them that if their car was hit to keep going and under no circumstances should they pull over and stop. So that whole bump and rob theory didn't make sense to her friend Alice unless Sarah knew the person who hit her car. Sarah was a good girl, a sweetheart, but she was protective over her car, and if she had been backed into a corner, according to her friend Alice, she would have fought her way out. And there was one more thing Alice knew that at the time didn't seem like a huge deal, but now, after Sarah's death, haunted her friends and family. Sarah had told her that Matt's ex girlfriend had been calling and harassing her, and Alice wouldn't be the only one recounting stories about Matt Euland's ex girlfriend. But before we get there, let's continue through what we do know about Sarah's whereabouts in those early morning hours of December 29th. Sarah DeLeon had given her friend Alice a ride to the airport, they had come back to Alice's mother's house had lunch, and Alice's mother had given the girls a warning about the recent carjackings in the area. At some point, and the details are a little unclear, but Sarah went out to dinner with her boyfriend, Matt Euland. After dinner, the pair went back to Matt's house. According to the Daily Beast, it was the last night of Christmas break before Matt had to head back for classes at Kansas State. Of course, Sarah and Matt wanted to soak up as much time together as they could before he left, so they hung out at Matt's house until about 1.30 a.m. That's when, according to Matt, Sarah got in her car and left. Matt's mother corroborated his story and said that Matt hadn't left the house that night after he had said goodbye to Sarah. Sarah was on her way back home and was just a mile away from making it there when whoever had rammed into the back of her car near that I70 overpass hit her we know that police responded to the scene at around 1:50 a.m. in reference to Sarah's abandoned car leaving a 20-minute window of time between when Sarah was last seen leaving Matt's and her car being found abandoned that fact coupled with the lack of blood and no indication of a struggle at the scene where the car was found made it extremely likely that Sarah had been attacked and abducted in a matter of minutes. And even as violent as the attack had been, the perpetrator had left almost nothing behind in the way of clues. It was such a small window of time, which led to the question, had someone been watching Sarah waiting for her to leave Matt's house, stalking her and waiting for an opportunity to strike. As the investigation continued, a story emerged about threats made against Sarah. According to Dateline, as the teenagers around town told it, they had heard a story about a girl who had asked a male friend to put something in Sarah's drink to drug her. And then, and I quote, cut off her pretty little fucking hair. Who was this girl threatening Sarah? It was none other than Matt Euland's ex-girlfriend, Carolyn Kuhn, the same girl Sarah's friend Alice mentioned who had been harassing Sarah. And this story about drugging Sarah and cutting her hair would be corroborated later in court by the male friend Carolyn had tried to convince to attack Sarah. He would later testify that Carol asked him to lure Sarah out of the house, get her drunk, and cut off all her hair in the weeks before her murder, which he obviously refused to do. And according to the DNA of murder, Carolyn herself confirmed this story in an initial interview with police, but said she was joking when she said she wanted to cut off Sarah's hair. And this wouldn't be the only story told about Carolyn Coon and threats and attacks on other women she saw as rivals, not by a long shot. But months passed and Sarah's case grew cold. Matt Euland picked up the pieces and moved on with his life, eventually getting back together with Carolyn Coon. I mean, she was there for him there to comfort him and help him through his grief. And she had been from day one, according to the Daily Mail, she had shown up at his house the very day Sarah was murdered, to tell him how sorry she was for his loss. The old flame was rekindled, and Carolyn seemed completely devoted to Matt, so much so that six months after Sarah's murder, she registered at the same college, Kansas State, so she could physically be there for Matt Euland. For whatever reason, the relationship didn't work out, though, and at some point, Matt and Carolyn broke things off. She moved on with her life, and so did Matt. They lost touch, and years would pass before Matt would hear from Carolyn again. But there was no moving on for Sarah's family. Their lives had forever been changed, and they had no answer as to why or who had taken Sarah from them. Whoever was responsible was still out there living their life while they struggled to get through the days without their girl. Years passed, but they weren't giving up. They tried to keep her name in the news, going on TV shows and holding vigils in honor of their sweet Sarah. But despite their best efforts, there was no major movement in Sarah's case for over 20 years. Until there was. And it all began, according to Dateline, in January of 2014, when Jeff Cheek was at home and had the TV turned on. Y'all remember Jeff, right? He was a 19-year-old police cadet in training who had initially been one of the responding officers way back in 1989 when Sarah's body had been found. Fast forward 25 years and Jeff was no longer a cop. He had retired and was working as a corporate security consultant. But he had never forgotten about Sarah. In fact, over the years and while he was still working for the Kansas City, Kansas Police Department, he had frequently asked the detectives assigned to Sarah's case about the status of the investigation, each time disappointed that no one had been held accountable for the brutal murder of this young woman. Jeff had never forgotten the horror of what he had seen that night as a young officer. 25 years later, as he was home about to doze off, he heard a familiar name come across the airwaves of the TV, Sarah Jo DeLeon. It was a news story about a vigil for Sarah, marking yet another anniversary of her murder. A murder that was still unsolved. The memories flooded his mind. How could Sarah's case remain unsolved after all these years? Jeff found Sarah's brother and mom and offered his services to them for free, not charging the family a single dime. Later stating to Dateline, I feel so bad because my old profession, something that I used to represent, has let these families down. How dare I take any money from them? It's said that even in the most tragic of circumstances, if you look hard enough, you can often find a hero. Jeff Cheek, as you will learn, is most definitely a hero. And Sarah DeLeon's family needed someone to step up. Jeff would be that guy. He would launch his own investigation and arrange the pieces of a 25-year-old puzzle, and soon a clear picture of who Jeff and the police believed was responsible would emerge. It would take years, and a trip across the Kansas River to Independence, Missouri, and the homicide of another beautiful young woman to put the puzzle together. But that's another story for another day, because unfortunately, we're running out of time. But I do want to leave you with this. Matt Uland did hear from his ex-girlfriend, Carolyn, again. According to the DNA of murder, after years with no contact, Matt's phone had rang in 1994. On the other end was Carolyn Kuhn, and she was calling Matt to tell him, that there had been another homicide. And police thought she was responsible. Carolyn, of course, claimed that she wasn't and the police were just incompetent. Matt recounted to Holes that he was confused. Why, after nearly five years, was Carolyn calling him to talk about a homicide? What in the fresh hell was happening? Now, way back when, Matt never thought his ex-girlfriend, Carolyn, had anything to do with Sarah's murder. I mean, he'd gotten back together with her and she seemed so sympathetic. Never once did he think she was capable of brutally murdering Sarah. That was until that phone call in 1994. As Carolyn went on to describe another homicide and the fact that the police were looking at her, The memories came rushing back, and the confusion about why, after all this time, Carolyn was calling him, made sense. As he hung up the phone, he thought to himself, I see, and he understood why she was calling. It was at that point Matt Euland believed Carolyn Kuhn was responsible for Sarah's murder. Join me next Thursday to hear the story of the second homicide victim, Diana Alt, who had one thing in common with Sarah. And in the meantime, head on over to Justice for Sarah on Facebook for more information. I'll be sure to add a link in the show notes. If you have any information, please reach out to the Kansas City, Kansas Police Department at 913-596-3000. Again, that's 913-596-3000. Sarah's family would also ask that you reach out to their private investigator, Jeff Cheek. You can get in contact with him over the Justice for Sarah Facebook page. Even if you've been in contact with investigators in the past, her family urges you to reach out again, writing in a post on Justice for Sarah in part. We have heard that some of you tried to reach out to the police years ago, but were ignored. They took your name and number, but never called. Some have told us that when you did have an opportunity to speak with an officer, you felt like you were unimportant and a bother, like they just wanted to check you off their list of things to do. Believe me, we understand this. Please know you will not be treated that way when you contact this Facebook page the private investigator working Sarah's case is genuinely interested in and dedicated to bringing resolution to Sarah's unsolved murder. Never feel it's too late to share something you've kept inside for years because you felt bad about not disclosing what you know sooner. You might feel guilty or even afraid of retribution, but you need to know neither I nor any family member hold you responsible for Sarah's death. We only want information that leads to the actual person who committed the crime. Signed, Sarah's Mother Gail. As always, you can find more information on this case or any of the others I've covered on my Instagram, at least underscore of these, or my Facebook, at least of these. New episodes drop every Thursday. I'll be bringing you the conclusion of this case next week. Make sure you subscribe. Believe me, you don't want to miss it. Thank you for listening. Thank you for caring. If you know something, say something. And until next time, be good to each other.